Good morning, church. My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount. And if I sound a little congested, it's because like most of you here in Northern Virginia, I have experienced all four seasons in the last three days. Uh, for those of you that are watching us online in San Diego or somewhere like that, you, don't, you may have known, you may have lived here at some point, but we here in Nova do things a little bit more efficiently. Where some people, it might take them 12 months to get through four seasons. We'll do all four and a time change in 36 hours. Because that's what you have to be able to do to make it here. Because you're going to spend half your life in traffic, so the other half has to be much faster. But that is what we do here in Nova. So if, if you hear that, that's what it is. It's just we fit a year worth of living in the last 36 hours, and I need a nap after this. So... That's where we're headed. Uh, we're going to be coming primarily out of Mark chapter 10 if you want to get there, but I'm going to warn you, we're going to start in an odd place. I'm going to give you two things that you don't think go together, but I hope you'll give me a fair hearing. I hope you'll hear me out, but experience tells me that you will not. I'm going to say this, tuna fish chili. I, I told you you wouldn't give me a fair, I told you you would not give me a fair hearing. But tuna fish chili is a, a joke in the Windsor household because about 10 years ago, maybe nine years ago, when I don't remember where Aaron was, that's my wife, she was out maybe working, maybe running errands, it was dinner time, so I was gonna make some chili. And so I got the ingredients, I chopped up the stuff, I put the thing in the pot to simmer, and then I went to go brown the beef and there, there was none. But, you guys, oh, I hadn't even got to the part yet. <laughs> like, oh. But you know what we did have? We had tuna fish. So yeah, I open up the can, I drain it, because I'm not a savage. <laughs> I drain it, I put it in, and I'm stewing that bad boy, and my kids are less than thrilled, and then their hero, my wife, comes home. And no one ever tasted the tuna fish chili until nine years later, when this has been a running joke in our house for the better part of a decade, that anytime we run into something weird or just for no reason at all, it would pop up. You, know, you guys remember that time that dad made tuna fish chili? Now, mind you, I have one kid that was a baby and two that weren't alive at this time. And they'll still say, do you remember when dad made? No, you don't. You weren't alive yet. But that's how the proportions that this joke has taken on is that the tuna fish chili is epic. And so a few months ago, I decide, okay, I'm going to show all of you. So I go online, which is where the vast resources of human wisdom is stored. <laughs> and I find a recipe for tuna fish chili. Yeah, and I go to the store, and I get the ingredients, and I simmer that bad boy up, and it's good, and it's good to go, and I taste it, and you will think I'm lying, but it is legit. It is good. So I feed some to my daughter, because she gets home first. She takes one bite. What's in this? <laughs> is this chicken? She asks, hopefully. I say, no, baby, that's tuna fish. Gone. Wouldn't taste it anymore. My son won't eat it. I gave it to a neighbor. 
They said it was pretty good. My son has a friend over. He eats an entire bowl, which means he's my new best friend now. I eat a bowl, and then we give it to my wife, who eats it and very kindly says, it's good, the flavor is good, but I can't get past the texture, which I counted as a win. That was a win, because if you don't know my wife, she's not going to lie. If it tasted bad, she's gonna say, this is awful, never do this again. But tuna fish chili, two things that don't go together that I can see, I have not convinced you yet do. (laughs) But some of us are converts. And so we're going to go from a kitchen to an AP Lang classroom, because often two things that seem not to go together can produce valuable insight and wisdom. This is called a paradox. A paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement that upon further investigation reveals a profound truth. And you're more familiar with these things than you think you are. You've heard it said before, you have to spend money to make money. Right? That's, a, that's a paradox. It seems odd. you got to spend it to make it, but this is a paradox. When you dig into, you say, oh, there's wisdom in that. You've heard of another one as well, maybe a little less popular. It's going to appear behind me. Down deep, you're really shallow. Yeah. Now, if you've ever heard this, there's no universe in which this cannot be considered an insult. But like most paradoxes, the more you think about it, the deeper this cuts. Because this isn't just saying you're shallow. This is saying I know you, and I've gotten to know you, and I've gone through the entire expanse that is you, and you're ankle deep. And the more you think about it, the more insulted you become because these two contradictions reveal insight into a thing that was not previously there before. And this is what paradoxes do. As we think through them, they show a deeper essence of what really is. Now, I'll only speak for myself here, but I was never more intelligent and never more prepared to face this earth than I was when I was 16 through 19 years old. I knew the rules, I knew the systems, and I knew the consequences, but I also knew they would not apply to me because my considerable intelligence was more than enough to defeat any obstacle in my path. Now, I'm not saying this to berate teens. I love teens. I'm a student pastor. I believe that the next great wave of faith will come through our teenagers because they're fed up with the cliches and religious language that we have made a part of our faith. They want something real, they want something authentic, and they will not follow just because it's the way it's been done or it's the way it ought to be. They want nothing short of radical life-changing transformation and they will get it because that's what they seek. So I'm not bashing teens, I'm bashing Jason Windsor. I was ready to take on the world at 19. At 26, not so much, because I came to find that this paradox was true. The one thing that I know is that I know nothing. And we see how that's contradictory. How can you know one thing and know nothing at the same time? Well, the the one thing that I know is that I know nothing. I can do what now? I can learn. Because I've now given other people permission to speak into my life. People that may have been teenagers before, 
people that may have been parents before, married before, students before, I can now learn when they tell me, hey man, that stove is hot. Instead of proudly putting my left hand on it as it burns me saying, this doesn't hurt a bit. So we see that paradoxes use very few words to say a ton. And Jesus' teachings are full of them. He constantly takes our assumptions or something that we think that we know and turns it square up upon its head, showing us that we didn't truly understand the essence of this thing, that we were missing the point all along. And so for the next few weeks, that's what we as a church family are going to do. We're going to take a look at the paradoxes that Jesus Christ uses to drop his wisdom and perspective, because this is what a paradox does. We think we know something, and then our perspective entirely shifts as we get to know that subject deeper. And one we're going to take on today has to do with greatness. And in our culture, we love us some greatness. It sells tickets. It defines legacies. We constantly debate about who's the goat because you realize that when you love something, it's not just enough to use words like greatest or greatest of all time. When you truly love something, you have to give it a clever nickname. So we debate who is the goat and we build statues to people that are great and we write stories about it and we wish to be commemorated as we are great. We love greatness in our society. We tell our children to aspire to it. And we're gonna look at a quote from a book called Destined to Win so that we can kind of get a launching point for what our society thinks about greatness. In his book, Destined to Win, Dr. Achari Asamoah writes, greatness has always been a hallmark of winners. Whether you are called to be a housewife, a musician, an athlete, an entrepreneur, a politician, or a cleaner, you are chosen to be great. This shows us two of our main beliefs about greatness. The first is that winners are great, and losers, not so much. You don't believe me? The Olympics were just held a few weeks ago. And very often, the gold medal winner and the fourth place finisher are separated by literally a hundredth of a second or a hundredth of a point. And the winner gets lauded and gets a gold medal and gets a legacy, and the fourth place finisher gets criticized. And not just criticized by people in the sport, the fourth place finisher gets criticized by you and me on our couch, 11.30 at night with a bag of potato chips or a bowl of cereal, having skied maybe seven times in our lives. And we say things like, man, he should, really should have landed that. Man, oh, her feet, if they were just, if her feet, you saw her feet, you saw them, like you, if her feet were just like this, she would have won. Because winners are great, and losers just are. The second thing that this communicates is that greatness is available to everyone. We believe that. We believe that anyone can be great. Now, greatness will only reside in the hands of a few, those who are talented enough, 
are those who pay the price, are those who are willing to sacrifice. But greatness can be found by anyone, anywhere, if he or she is willing to work, willing to be the best in the office, the best on the ball field, the best wherever. Greatness can come from any location. And I say those two things and I use those quotes just so we can have an agreement on what greatness looks like in our culture before, as promised, we dig into Mark 10. So with me, let's go into Mark 10. We're going to start in verse 32, where the author says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Now that may seem like a weird place to start. There's a bunch of Jews going into Jerusalem, and they're scared. Well, they're scared because they knew that there were people there that wanted to kill Jesus, and by proxy, wanted to kill them as well. You see, by this time in his ministry, Jesus is pretty well known, and he's popular in some circles, but very unpopular in others. And discussions have already taken place about, we want to kill Jesus Christ. Now, this may seem odd, because when we present Jesus, we generally present him as very kind, very loving, a gifted teacher. So depending on what you know about Jesus, you may be confused as to why they wanted to kill him. Because if you search the historical record, those claims are generally well supported, that he was kind, and he was revered, and he did teach in the synagogues, and he did perform miracles, and he did so many of these things, but this is not why they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him because he claimed to be the son of God, and they thought that was blasphemous. You don't get to claim to be God if you are not God. So they wanted to kill him. Because you see, when God created the world in which we currently live, it was not as we currently experience it. There was no betrayal. There was no war. There was no sickness. Those are purely human inventions. That's the stuff we added to his perfect creation. Because you and I have hurt each other. You and I have failed to do good when we knew what the good thing to do was. And as a result, we separated ourselves from God's original plan. We effectively separated ourselves from a perfect and loving father and stand correctly judged for the wrong which we have done to each other and to his perfect creation. But God, unwilling that this would be the final arrangement, promised a savior, someone that would come to put creation back to rights, to restore it to its original purpose and design, and Jesus claimed to be that savior, and the leaders at the time wanted to kill him for that claim. So Jesus, sensing this tension, knowing why the disciples are afraid, pulls them all back together and gives them the plan very clearly. Scripture says, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise. He lays out the plan. He says, look, I know why you're afraid. You're afraid they're gonna kill me. But guys, that's the plan. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. But don't worry, because of my death, you will get the sign that everybody wants to see. You're undecided on whether or not I am the son of God, but three days after I die, I will show you that I am the son of God because I will come back out of that tomb and you will see me again. 
And this is how we know that Jesus is who he says he is. And it's not just corroborated in scripture. This claim is echoed in Roman historians like Tacitus and Pliny the Younger. This is an historical account of what the Christ did. I will show you I am who I say I am because even though you kill me, I will refuse to stay dead. This is Jesus revealing his true nature to his followers. This is an epic, important moment, and here is how they respond. James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You've got to agree with me on this. That is loaded. (laughs) That is like you and me having a conversation. And I come to you and I say, look, I'm going to tell you something. But before I do, you have to promise not to be angry at me. (laughs) No, I make you no such promises. (laughs) I'm going to ask you to do something, but you got to promise to do it before I ask. No. We are clearly going to define the terms of this thing before we get into any kind of arrangement, so why don't you just spit it out? But here's what Jesus says. He says, what do you want me to do for you? See, he's he's always thinking three-dimensional chess. He's like, no, I'm not agreeing to that. You tell me first. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Ah, so there it is. They want positions of authority. They say, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, and Jesus is really powerful. He's going to Jerusalem to get all the Romans out, and he's going to set up this kingdom he's been telling us about for three years. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming, he says. Now we're going to Jerusalem, and people want to kill him. He is about to run this shop, and we want to run it with him. So let's go up. Hey, Jesus, do you think we can sit at your right and your left? When you set up this kingdom you've been telling us about, and here's what Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong for those whom they have been prepared He says, you got no idea what you're talking about. You think I'm about to go in here and raise an army and throw out the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom. And that's why you're asking me this. I just told you I'm going there to die, literally five minutes ago. I just told you the plan, but you can't hear me because you're so concerned with your own position and your own authority and your greatness in this kingdom that you think that I'm going to set up. And when the other disciples heard about that, they were less than thrilled. Mark continues in uh, verse 40. He says, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're mad. Like, we're in this together, and you guys are sneaking off trying to get positions of authority. What makes you greater than me? We've been with him just as long as you have. We've seen all, we're actually better than you because we didn't make a dumb request right after he told us he was going to die. <laughs> like, who are you guys to go get this? They're mad. And Jesus hears the argument, and he senses the tension. And so he pulls them all back together, and this is what he says. 
You know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, that's you and me, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says greatness is not what you think it is. This is the paradox he delivers. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. The one who is first, the one who is held most prominently, potentially the one who will sit on my right and my left, will be the slave of all. We think that greatness is symbolized by podiums and awards and corner offices and people looking up to us. Jesus says it's symbolized by the greatest being that has ever existed being nailed to a piece of wood. He says we've got it all wrong. And he is right. Because if you think about it, which way is humanity best served? By our definition of greatness, I have to push you down. Records were made to be broken. We're in constant competition. If I am to be greater than you, then your success and my success constantly puts us in conflict. I have to dominate you. I have to get an edge. I have to be watching my back for anybody that's coming on that could take my position, that could take my influence, that could break my record, that could get what I rightfully deserve, that could diminish the light that shines on me. But Jesus' paradox clearly communicates that by his definition of greatness, the one who is greatest among us is the one that lifts everyone else up. You see, Jesus is famous. But he didn't come to seek fame. He's famous because he did what nobody else could do. He's famous because the greatest, most powerful, wisest, most loving being that ever existed laid down his life for those of us that could not help ourselves. And he uses himself as an example when he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. He walked to the cross willingly, at great cost to himself and for great benefit for us. And the call to us that believe that he is who he says he is, is to follow Jesus Christ. You remember that. He shows up on the scene and what does he say to the people that are following to Jerusalem? Follow me. And what does he say to the next batch? Follow me. And we want to follow him because we see him in his glory and we want the glory but we forget that the humiliation of Jesus Christ preceded his glory. We want all the glory, but you can keep that humiliation stuff to yourself. We want the glory, but we'll pass on the suffering, forgetting that his suffering preceded his glory. 
Setting the glory before the suffering is to do things in the wrong order and is not to follow Jesus Christ. Even the language that we use diminishes him at times. Pastors say things like, you need to accept Jesus into your heart, which I understand where it comes from, but who are we to accept him at all? Worship him, praise him, love him, sing to him, but accept him in light of the greatness that is Jesus Christ? That seems very offensive that the authority would be on me to accept him or not accept him. Like he needs my permission to come to a saving faith of Jesus Christ is not to accept him. It's to look at him and go, wow. Because to pursue greatness is to pursue Jesus Christ. Because there is no one greater. Because there is no one who did more for humanity. The irony of that, though, is that greatness pursues us. Greatness came from heaven, perfect heaven, because of what you and I did. Greatness allowed himself to be made into nothing, tortured, killed, so that he could prove his greatness by raising back from the dead so that we cannot accept him, but be in awe of him. The great irony is that the only way to pursue greatness is to pursue Jesus Christ. The pursuit of anything else is abject foolishness and pales in comparison to who he is. And when we see that greatness for what it is, all our excuses burn away. I don't have time. I don't have money. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she's like. Those people are unservable. To look at the Christ on the cross is to see all of our excuses disintegrate. And when we choose his definition of greatness over our definition of greatness, this place and places like these become exactly what they were meant to be. Jesus said, the healthy don't need a hospital, the sick do. And when we can come here and quit comparing resumes and quit trying to figure out who's better than everybody else and quit holding people in authority in higher esteem and people with more money in higher esteem, and people, when we can quit doing that, pseudo-judging by comparison, this place is a hospital. When you read the scriptures, it was never the low. It was never the outcast. It was never the people in the wrong that were afraid of Jesus Christ. They flocked to him. You know why? He loved them and he served them. They were never worried about what he thought about them. We see in scripture that he turned over tables and that he pronounced woes and he calls people snakes and absolutely he did that. But that's like this much of his ministry. And it's the part that was directed at the people who were ostracizing the people that he loved. He flipped, over temples, he flipped over tables in the temple, not in the streets. And he pronounced woes on the religious leaders that were telling other people they weren't good enough. 
whose definition of greatness was sitting at the head of table and holding positions of power, those are the people he yelled at. Not the people that were already on the down and out. Our Lord and Savior went to the cross to serve us. And we are never more like him when we lay down our lives for people who have no resources and no hope of ever paying us back. There's a renowned psychologist, 35 years in the field, named Diane Lamberg. And she summarizes this perfectly with this quote. She says, the most important thing that we do as Christians is to be like Christ. Our Father sent His Son to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That the greatest among us will be the servant of all. That the one who is first will be the slave to all. If you have any questions about who Jesus is, if you're wrestling with that, if you're undecided, there'll be some fine men and women up here at the front of the stage that would love to talk to you, would love to pray with you about that decision and answer any questions that you might have. If you are decided in who Jesus Christ is and you just need prayer or you wanna connect to this crazy thing that we call the Mount family, they'll be up here for you as well. Maybe you just wanna pray, maybe you just wanna be introduced to someone or you have questions, whatever it is. I would urge you, take that bold step and connect. And remember, the most important thing that we do as Christians is to be like the Christ and we are never more like him than when we lay down our lives in the way that he did. For the greatest among us will be the servant of all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for serving us and we have no hope of ever paying you back. We just ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, you inspire us to a life of sacrificial love and giving that can just be a fraction of what you gave us. We ask that by your teachings, we would be fed and by your life, we would have an example and we pray for the fortitude and we pray for the desire and we pray for the love of those around us that we can be what you have called us to be. Servants and children of the Most High God. We ask things in your name.